All right, so we are doing our Nehemiah series. Uh, this series is called Return to God. That's the idea from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And in the events of the, uh, really the, the biblical story of Nehemiah, we're going to see ourselves, we're going to see our time, our city, our church in all of these events. So this is set during the 5th century BC, and God's people are basically hopeless. They're illiterate to God's ways and God's words, and they are following pagan practices. And in this time of hopelessness, God raises up a few different people, but one key person is Nehemiah, and God uses him. He is the, the uh, cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, of, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire at the time, and God uses Nehemiah to essentially uh, to, to, to cause uh, more return to uh, Jerusalem, uh, but also to lead God people, God's people through one of the most impossible times, uh, really, that they faced in biblical history. So the broader context is, is this idea. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me fill you in just real quick. God's people in the Old Testament, the height of their kind of uh, the kingdom of Israel, the height of their kingdom kind of during King David's reign and his son Solomon, they were doing pretty good. I mean, nothing's ever perfect. Um, when you read the kings in the Old Testament, it just it gets bad. You know, the judges, are, I mean, it's all bad, basically. But there was at least a moment, at least, kind of a glimpse where it was like, okay, like we're, we're safe and secure. We're peaceful and pros prosperous. We're like, we built this fancy temple for God. Uh, like, hey, we, we, we're getting as close as, as human society could ever get to like a righteous and just place on earth. You know, we're trying to strive for heaven on earth, right? And so, like, we, we, you know, we got into that height of doing that, but then God's people time and again just kept failing and failing and failing and just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it, they got so evil, in fact, they were incredibly corrupt, and they, the kingdom split in two. So it split between um, uh, Israel and Judah, and um, basically God, as a massive intervention to stop the evil of His own people, exiled them. He sent the Babylonians and the Persians to conquer them, to exile them, to drag them away. But in His grace, He left a remnant behind in Jerusalem, a small group of people who would stay there and were vulnerable and really hopeless and broken. But by God's grace, He preserved that, that remnant there. But everyone else was dragged off to Babylon, and they were in exile for 70 years, 70 years. After 70 years, people started to return and now the Persian Empire is basically in control, and they're starting to return. One of the people that returns early on is a guy called Ezra, who was a priest and a scribe, somebody very familiar with God's Word, and he kind of reboots, he kind of finishes off the, the, the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem and kind of reboots Israelite worship. And then 13 years after Ezra, we pick up the events of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is now coming back, he obviously lives in, in Babylon uh, under King Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer for the king, but he learns that the gates of Jerusalem and the walls, the gates have been burned down and the walls have been demolished in certain areas, and so the people are vulnerable. And so he has to return uh, with this mission to say, we've got to restore Jerusalem. We've got to save Jerusalem. We've got to save God's people and, and rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates and uh, secure the city of God. And all this matters because ultimately, God had promised to bring about a Messiah through the descendants of Abraham. And if they're going to be snuffed out, if they're going to be destroyed, then Jesus wouldn't have come, wouldn't have been born. And so, this, this is the most consequential stuff that we're dealing with, that we're talking about in this series. 
We've learned, we're in week three today, but we've learned so far, we've learned about kind of the prayer and fasting of Nehemiah, how he threw himself on God. He was seeking God with all of his heart and, uh, and fasting as well. And as a church, we just had prayer and fasting recently. And those moments for us are kind of our Nehemiah moments. So I want to urge you, if you're not familiar with getting together with a group of Christians and really praying and seeking God together and fasting and, you know, kind of upping your spiritual game in that way, um, we have these events planned throughout the year. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to our calendar. Make sure you're getting our weekly news, email newsletter with all our information and events coming up. You can subscribe to all that stuff on our website. But uh, we want to be taking advantage of those kind of Nehemiah moments to seek God in prayer and fasting. Uh, we all also learned um, that faith is one thing, the idea that we want to trust God, and we've got internal, an internal sense of faith, but we're learning from Nehemiah that faith has to become an action, that you need, need to live out your faith and actually achieve the purposes of God in your generation. And we see that in, in Nehemiah. And so he, he prays to the king of heaven first, but then he goes to King Artaxerxes and says, will you give me permission to leave you and go back to Jerusalem? And also, will you give me resources to repair the damage that's been done? And God prepares King Artaxerxes' heart, and he says, yes, I'll allow you to go, and I'll give you the resources you need. I'll give you letters to give you access uh, so that you can be safe and do this. And that's where we pick up the story today. We're going to be reading in chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Let's pray. Jesus, illuminate your word to us today. Help us understand the events of the Old Testament here, that we would see ourselves in it, uh, that we would learn from it, but that ultimately and most importantly, that we would see you in it, that we would learn more about you and that we would learn to trust you all the more. God, would you guide us and help us and sustain us and, Lord, achieve your purposes through us. Help us to have great faith and help us to act on the faith that you give us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here we go. It says, so he's on his mission. He set, away, set off from Babylon. It says, it says, then I came to the governors of the, of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Boo-hoo. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring, that sounds cool, and to the dung gate, that doesn't sound as good, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up, to, up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. 
Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. Or, excuse me, are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. So, immediately here, we learn about a couple of villains in the story, Sambalat the Horonite and uh, Tobiah the Ammonite. And uh, when I first read these verses here and just, you know, when it says that um, they were just greatly displeased that anyone would seek the welfare of the people of Israel, I was just like wanting to turn a spit on the floor and denounce them as the anti-Semitic scum that they appear to be. And, but then I remembered in my own shame, I remembered that growing up, I uh, learned a lot of jokes, and we told a lot of jokes about the Irish and the French, and that everyone has their prejudice, right? Everyone has their prejudice, uh, but we, but, but you know, I spent time contemplating and thinking about, um, you know, Bono from U2, you know, Irish, you know, and um, you know, the stinky cheese of the French, and just, just, just spending, and, and my heart was able eventually to get to a place where I was like, all right, I, I, I feel a lot better about the Irish. So that was that was that was good progress. So. These, these two villains, though, they, they cast a long shadow, sorry to, anyway, uh, cast a long shadow over the, the events of Nehemiah. We're going to see these reoccurring villains in the story here. They're very powerful, very prominent people. Historical documents actually tell us that um, Sambalat, the, the Horonite, that he uh, was the governor of Samaria. We learn that from, from histor- other historical documents outside the Bible. We also learn that Tobiah was a very powerful family name uh, from the region of Ammon, which so he's an Ammonite, and um, it calls him servant, um, and it makes it, or you can almost think, oh, he's the servant of Sambalot, but actually it seems like Nehemiah is kind of snubbing him a little bit in this phrase, because it's weirdly phrased in, in the language. Uh, it's not a typical, you know, normally you'd say that anyone that's under another king, that's under another ruler, you'd say, you know, they're the king's servant. Everyone in that sense is the king's servant. Um, but it's not worded that way. It's worded in a way that it makes it sound like uh, Tobiah is, is kind of a bit of a weasel. He's kind of, he's, the reason he got his position of power is because he's weaseling up to Sambal or maybe to Artaxerxes. So it, it seems like it's almost like a contemptuous snub on the part of Nehemiah. So if that's the case, then we're getting to see some of the personality of Nehemiah coming through here. But then later on uh, in the last few verses we read in the passage, uh, we learned of Geshem. And Geshem appears to be more powerful even than the first two that we learned about. All right, Geshem uh, from outside the Bible again, archaeological evidence here, there was a, a silver vessel that was discovered that was a, a gift to uh, an Arabian goddess in the end of the 5th century BC. And there's an inscription on it that indicates that Geshem was the, um, the king of Qadar and that he actually ruled over a league of Arabian tribes. And so he's an extremely powerful uh, individual, more powerful, it seems, than the first two. 
And so what we, we see here is we see massive hostility of these state forces converging against Nehemiah. We see in, from the south, oh, sorry, excuse me, from, from, from the north, we see the powers in Samaria coming through, and then from the east, the, the powers of Ammon, of the Ammonites coming through, and then we see from this Arabian king uh, from uh, the north, we see, or it, was, it, was, it should be north, south, and west. I'm not very good with directions, if you can't tell. So I'm terrible at asking for directions and also terrible at making directions too. So my wife is great at directions, so I don't know why that, that's not a, a point that's important right now. But either way, the point is that he's surrounded. Nehemiah and God's people, they're surrounded. And even though he's got letters from the king, even though he can be confident, like, hey, we, we, you know, we've got permission from the king to do this, the, these powers can easily conspire and give false reports and easily change the, di- the power dynamic in the region and actually turn Artaxerxes against them. They can, they, they can give back some kind of false report of, like, well, this is what Jerusalem's doing. They're opposing your power. They're, they're, they're doing this and that. They've done these terrible crimes and these terrible things. They can make up all kinds of false reports, especially if they all band together. And so we see the immediately. I mean, we're right at the beginning stages of this project that Nehemiah's on, this mission he's got, and we're seeing immediate opposition. The theme of opposition comes up right away. We should never be surprised by that. Anytime we step out for God, to trust God, to follow God, there's going to be opposition. It's just going to happen. There's no way to stop it. But he has backup, and he has kind of visible authority backup. He hasn't just come with bodyguards or a sheriff or police officers. He's come with military personnel, because it says that Artaxerxes sent with him, we read it, basically he sent with him officers of the army, so, he showed, so this, this would have been quite the entrance to come in with, with, with military personnel. This is actually a tactic, I, the exact tact, same tactic I use when I tell my wife I've planned a boys' weekend. And, but we see, we, so we see, we see um, Nehemiah using this here. So we see um, he's got the letters, but the letters could be forgeries, right? They could just be made up. So He's got to have these military personnel there. If he's only got the military personnel, that's not quite enough to say, well, what are the king's wishes? But he's got, he's got the letters and the military personnel together. These guys can't stop him at this point. These guys can't stop him at this point. We should not be surprised at this level of pushback, this level of displeasure and hatred and opposition towards the significant and, and massive plans of salvation that God wants to bring uh, in the earth through his people. And one of the things we can learn, because we can, you know, these are real physical events, and there are parallels to the physical events in our lives, but also these are the spiritual lessons we can learn through this as well. That anytime you get any kind of opposition, so we don't want to over-spiritualize everything, but we can look at this in the sense that, you know, we have real enemies in our lives, but also we have a spiritual enemy, right? So we talked about this a lot. Last year, we talked about, we did our uh, series called uh, The Lion and the Dragon, and we talked a lot about spiritual warfare and, you know, fallen angels, demonic powers, all those things, we shouldn't be surprised that the number one tactic, the first tactic, partly because it's the easiest tactic, is this idea of displeasure and disapproval. That's what we see from these villains, from Sambalot, from Tobiah, and from Geshem. They're, They're just really unhappy. Somebody would seek the welfare of these Jews? And we've got, what we've got to realize about that is, it seems so powerful it seems like it's a big deal, but in actuality, it has no power to it. It has no power to it. That's, that's one of the, the ideas we have to realize. Is just somebody's, obviously, it's going to, the opposition as we go on 
as, we, as the weeks go on in this, we're going to see more direct opposition. Okay, we're going to see, we're going to see that happen. But at this point, at the beginning point, this is just them saying, well, we just don't like it. We just, dis, we just disapprove of it. And we've got to understand this is a major tactic, a spiritual warfare tactic that gets used against us is just the impression, whether it's even, sometimes it's just, it's not even real, it's just perceived. But the idea that, oh, people are disapproving. Or pe people uh, just don't like what we're doing. Or don't like what I'm doing. And they're opposing me. And we've got to realize there is the only power at that point that it has, because there's nothing direct happening. The only power it has is how it makes us feel in that moment. That's the only power it has. And once you realize that, obviously you pray against it, you, 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 you don't let it control you. You say, no, we're going we're gonna to pray for God to move. We're going to still act in faith. Because the only power it has is that it might actually make me back down. It might actually make me feel scared and afraid. And that's the only power it has because it's just disapproval. But that's oftentimes the first tactic of the enemy because it's, it's not much effort. It's not much effort to say, I disapprove. You have my displeasure. So let's not miss that. But we, here we see that God in his providence basically sets up the perfect assist for Nehemiah. He's got the letters. He's got the, 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 the military, the army officers with him. He's got the perfect help from God. So what we learn is we learn that providentially, God ahead of time actually gives us the assist that we need. And that the way we fight, the way we, so we, we trust that God's working things out, right? We trust that, that when we move in God's purposes and God's plans, there's going to be opposition to it. We, we're going to have barriers to it, whatever it might be. But we also trust that God has the perfect assist. He has the perfect way to work things out for his glory. And that one of the main ways we fight is we show the letters. We actually, we turn to the written word. We say, we say well, actually, I've got a higher authority so you, you, might, you might be displeased with this, or there might be voices or ideas or opposition to this that's, that's attacking. That might seem powerful, but I actually have got letters. I've got a letter from the highest authority in the land that says I can do this, that says I've got permission to do this. That's, that's spiritual warfare right there. That's what Jesus did right when Jesus was attacked, the three temptations of, of Christ. Every time he responds with the written word, what did God say. That's how the battle is always waged. And we see Nehemiah's got these letters from the king, and he says, this is the written word. And, he's got, and then he's got bodyguards to, well, he's got military personnel to back it up as well. And we can have confidence as well that there are spiritual forces backing up the promised words of God in our lives. So we see that. So we see then Nehemiah, he lands in Jerusalem, you know, he's passed this first test, He's gone through, and he lands in Jerusalem. He says he's there three days. It's first kind of a kind of long weekend. Kind of takes a long weekend, and he's got a brother who lives there, and so maybe he's visiting his brother. Um, maybe he's getting some local deep dish, or uh, you know, doing something. Right? He's hanging out, connecting with people. And maybe he's because uh, he said that he uh, before wanted to get some of the the timber to uh, rebuild his kind of own quarters, his kind of own living situation. So he's getting himself set up. You know, he's playing his timber resource card from Catan to get the the situation set up, so a few people like that one. Just testing my material out here. Anyone, anyone wants the game of Catan, I'm up for it, all right? Okay, so he's there for three days, but what, what we learn here is he's probably setting up his living you know, environment, he's connecting with some people, uh, making a few initial plans, uh, but three days is, is a very quick period of time because 
you know, he's, he's basically, he's not delaying at all. He's getting right on and right into God's mission and God's purposes. He's, he's living with this urgency and this sense of the importance of this, that we, we're living under derision. We're living under this extreme mockery where God's people are vulnerable. God's purposes are so important. And he, he, he basically takes this long weekend to get the basics set up, and then he's straight on to now I'm going to power up. Now I'm going to get it straight into God's mission, straight into God's purposes. And it makes sense to me because he's already been praying and fasting for actually months before this, not you know, on and off fasting, not fasting for months at the end. You understand what I mean? But he's been praying and fasting for a long period of time. You know, he gets, and then he breaks down and gets his deep dish in. And then, and then he's like, I've got to, I've got to act. I've got to act. And this, is, this, this theme comes through in the story of Nehemiah, the events of Nehemiah a lot, that and in Ezra as well, the book before Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this constant refrain of this trusting in the, the good hand of the Lord, the, the kind of the providential hand, the, essentially the sovereignty of God, that God's in control of our lives. God's in control of your life. He's in control of my life. And, and the, the huge benefit, it's true, but the benefit to believing it and accepting it is that when things aren't quite going the way that we hope they would go and the way that we want them to go, it gives you confidence. Well, okay, I can't see how it's all working out or it doesn't look like it's looking like it's working out that great right now, but I have confidence in the sovereignty of God, in the power of God, in God's control, that He is still working through this and we will still get to the end point that He wants us to get to. No matter what, how the pathway takes us there, we'll get there in the end. That's confidence, that's faith, and that's a powerful, to have that, that sense is very reassuring, gets you through those storms. The downside though, on a human, humanly speaking, the downside to... Um, God's, the idea of God's sovereignty is that it can cause us to be a bit apathetic sometimes and a bit lazy sometimes and say, well, you know, God's going to do it, right? Isn't God going to do it? And, uh, oh, well, we tried something that didn't quite work, therefore God wasn't in it. And it's, it's so easy for us to, to so, so on the one hand, we want to believe in God's sovereignty because that gives us confidence when we face barriers. But on the other hand, it can become an excuse uh, to us. Nehemiah is very confident. He, he's, he's, he's very confident. He says, you know, that God is going he's, he's gonna to make us prosper. Those are the words. That's the phrase he uses. God is going to make us prosper. So yes, he, he, he has belief in God's sovereignty that God's going to work it out. But we also see him acting, acting. And God seems, to, God seems to love using his people to achieve his purposes. I mean, you know, sometimes I scratch my head and think like, God, it would have been cleaner if you had just done this one. Like, why do you have this person do it? Or why do you ask me to do this? Like, wouldn't it just be better if you did it? Like, you'd just nail it every time. It'd be great. But God doesn't, God loves to work through his children. He loves to get his children on his mission to achieve his purpose. And that's part of the joy of following God is that we get to join in with the adventure that God is on himself. And I know this as a parent myself. I love the, the, the joy of getting my kids involved in my mission, you know, get me a snack, massage my, my feet, get off YouTube, you know, whatever it might be. But as a parent, you can really relate to that as well. So we've got to have both attitudes that we see in Nehemiah here. We've got to have this attitude of trust that God will achieve his ends, his purposes, his means, his sovereignty, his control. Uh, he's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the king of heaven. Got that down. But also, well, because I have such faith and confidence in that, therefore, I want to act in accord with that because that's what God's doing. So we get it wrong when we're like, well, it's up to God. Just I can't do anything. Like, no, no. All moral activity 
is at our disposal, right? We don't manipulate, we don't force things, we don't, you know, of course we always trust God, but it always bothers me when people are like, oh, you're not, you know, you step out and you try something, and they're like, oh, you're not trusting God. Like, what do you know? Like, how can you judge my motives in this? Like, you know, God's revealed all kinds of things we should be doing. It's like, I'm just giving it a go. Like, this is what I love about Nehemiah. He's so action-oriented. He's a man of great faith and great confidence in God's power and God's sovereignty, but he's also a man of great action, faithful action in alignment to bring about the purposes of God. And we see this go into like full-on beast mode with, with Nehemiah in verses, I think it's verses 12 through 16. He, in the middle of the night, you know, it's, I think he maybe got a few guys with him or by himself, but he's on his horse and he's basically going around at nighttime. He doesn't want to let anyone know. He doesn't want the nobles to know, the officials to know. He doesn't want word to get out, you know, because this project's, you know, people are probably thinking like, okay, he's brought the timber in. He's got you know, these, these, these military personnel, these letters, like, okay, he's got this stuff, but um, it's going to be a while till this project gets started, right? Because this is a big, big project. And, but Nehemiah is on a mission to get it started really quick. So he, he doesn't tell any of the people that need to know. All the people that are going to do the work, it's funny, actually, you know, Nehemiah's already predetermined, like, hey, all these people are going to be doing all this work. I'm not going to tell them ahead of time. So he gets up in the middle of the night. He, he basically goes around. He inspects. He wants to see firsthand for himself what is the damage? What gates have been destroyed? What does the wall look like? How bad is it? How long? He wants to get a proper assessment himself to get eyes on it so that he can have confidence to come back to the people with a vision and with a proper assessment of it. And there's some great insights. There's some great leadership lessons, some great um, just life lessons that we can, we can pull from this that, yes, we want to act for God and be quick to act for God. We don't want to be lazy and apathetic and use God's sovereignty as an excuse to do nothing. Uh, but also, we don't want to just jump in blindly. Actually, faith, the idea of blind faith is, is not really a thing. We, we understand that, right? But sometimes we think, oh, faith is just completely, completely blind. No, God's actually kind enough to give us, almost in every situation, a little something to hold on to, a little something that's like, okay, there's, there's something tangible in this. There's something uh, uh, physical in this in some way. And so we see we don't want to jump in just blindly. So Nehemiah gets a proper assessment. And, you know, there are times in our lives where this is not easy. You know, he stays up all night. He's up all night doing this. And this is, this is the, the, kind of how crucial this moment is for God's, God's people at this time. And so there are moments where we have to really hustle. We could call it the kingdom hustle. We come up with this new term that you'll feel, feel free to use. I won't charge you for it. But essentially, kingdom, this is a kingdom hustle that he's having to like really go after this to quickly and accurately assess the damage to Jerusalem. How bad? Because he's got to organize. He's got to organize all the people. He's going to have to get all these. It's this massive project, this massive undertaking. So I've got, to, I've got to figure this out pretty quickly. And one of the um, one of the, the interesting things about this is uh, in one, one, one of the other dangers is that we we yes, I want to act quickly, but also I don't want to do it completely blindly, but also. I don't have to have everything figured out. These kind of, you've got to kind of balance these things as you follow God. I don't have to have everything figured out. So when Nehemiah says that, that he didn't tell anyone what God had put in his heart, that word put is rendered in our translations in, in the past tense. So you think, oh, God's already just spoken to him about it all. He's got it. He's just following it. But actually, in the original language, it's a kind of a present tense, it's an active tense. So it's more the idea of God's putting this in his heart. So what this reveals to us is, and we know this from other parts of the Bible, is that 
You don't see the full plan. You haven't got the full picture, but you got some of it. God's kind enough that he gives you some of it. And so we step out in trusting God, say, I'm going to take this step, and God is putting this into my heart as I go along. So Nehemiah is really smart about this and very savvy and very determined, extremely determined. In one night, he makes this assessment, and then he's ready the next day, essentially, to give this kind of pitch, this visionary uh, pitch to uh, God's people. And it just, it just goes to show you the power of God and the power of coffee as well, which I'm sure helped him through that time. But he does this so quickly, does it so quickly. He doesn't have the whole plan together. He acts but he steps out in faith. It reminded me, I was trying to, as I was preparing this sermon, I was like really praying and thinking like, God, what would be some parallels for our church or something that comes to mind? And God reminded me of this. It's not really a super strong parallel, but uh, it captures the spirit of it, I guess, in one sense. But think about this for your own mind and your own heart and how God might stir something in you in terms of participating in the rebuilding effort. Um, so, Several years ago now, uh, a member in our church, a guy called Alex Locke, who is not with us today, he might be online, uh, but Alex is a long-term member of our church, and I was remembering back several years ago now to his baptism when we baptized Alex, and um, he was just so pumped, he was so excited, and we, it was before the days when we had our own ability to actually baptize people in our church services. If those of you who have been around for a long time, you remember that, before we actually had our own uh, ability to do this. And so we had to go to another church building and use their baptistry, and we baptized Alex there, and he was just so pumped. He was just, his faith was on, he was on fire for God, and just like, wow, like I took this big step of baptism, and just, he was on fire, and he came up to me after his baptism, and he just said, Matt, I'll do I do whatever you want me to do, whatever it's going to take to serve this church, to like, you know, just let me know. What do you need? What do you need? And I said, Alex, it's incredible that you would bring this up right now because I was just thinking, we need a private jet and a vacation home in Hawaii. Can you do that? No. What I said, what I said to him was, I said, you know what? It's funny because I really would love for us to get our own baptism tank. And I don't know where we're going to store it. I don't know how we're going to ship it. I don't know how, how we, because we were meeting in a school at the time. And I was like, I don't know all, the, all those practical details, but could you figure that out for me? And he was like, I'll do it. I'll do it. So he researched it. He bought this, this animal feeding trough, this big metal contraption, right? Some of you have seen. And he had it delivered. He got it set up, got it all figured out. And uh, thanks to Alex, we, we have that. Many people have been blessed by that tank, you know, some of you have been baptized in that tank. Our, all of our kids pretty much have been baptized in that tank because of what Alex did. It's a very small little example of something practical that someone's like, hey, I wanna, I'm getting energized for the mission, and what, how can I serve? What can I do? And somebody did something that then has a profound ongoing impact in people's lives. It's pretty cool. So great job, Alex, for that. I'm still hoping for the private jet, though, of course. That'd be, honestly, that would be amazing. Um, I would feel bad, though. I'd just feel guilty the whole time, like, no, no. Okay. Again, distracted here by my own joke. So, where did I get to? I totally lost my, my, lost my spot here. Um, it's not uncommon, I would say this, it's not uncommon for believers to have a sense that I want to serve God, I want to make a difference, I want to play a part, Almost like what Grant was talking about in his testimony earlier on, that sometimes you can get something very specific, and, you, and that can give you a lot of uh, security and clarity, like, yes, I know exactly what I should do. But other times you're like, I'm just kind of meandering around a little bit. I'm not, like, I've got a heart for it, but like, what do I do? Like, how do I live it out? And I just want to tell you, if that's how you feel, that's totally okay. I'm, I'm going to explain why. 
Some of the reason we feel bad about that is because of our cultural context. You have to realize people in Bible times and other cultural contexts don't feel that way. You feel that way because we live in a success-oriented culture that says you have to have smart goals, right? They've got to be smart, right? The acronym, you know, they've got to be smart goals. You've got to have a five-year plan. You've got to have clarity. You know, if you don't have that, then you're screwing up somehow. You're a failure somehow, right? And if you don't have that, then you feel bad about yourself, right? You've just got to realize there are some... I mean, there are times it's good to have clarity on all that stuff, but there are some personality types as well that just don't gel with that kind of stuff. They're just like allergic to it. Like it doesn't work for them. And so, and that's fine because it's not biblical anyway. So here's why it doesn't matter if you don't have that kind of level of clarity because God raises up Nehemiahs. God raises up leaders and he puts a vision in their heart and then he rallies followers and people around them to say, hey, let's coalesce. Let's gather around that vision and work at it together. That's the beautiful thing about how God's family, how God's people, how it works. You don't have to be the one, like Moses going up to the top of the mountain and getting the tablets. And that's pretty great, especially if you, if you hate hiking. But you can, you can, you've got to have confidence that, hey, the, the vision is from God. We trust the vision's from God. We trust the leadership. You've got to have confidence in those things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, again, it's not, there's never really blind faith. There's, there's some markers of things we can be, you know, depend on a little bit here. But, but, we, want to, but we, we still want to have confidence in it. But when we align ourselves around the vision that God's put in a Nehemiah, and that's what I think we're doing at Trinity here, is like, hey, let's gather around God's vision and walk into his purposes together. Because God's, you know, God's people in this time, they were desperate. They were in despair. They were hopeless. They'd been exiled. They'd been crushed. Like, could they have been snuffed out? I mean, Jews throughout history, man, they have been through it time and time again. A people under massive persecution, thinking of this in this generation, is this it? Are we going to be gone? Is all of our cultural heritage, all of our beliefs, everything that God's done in the past, is it going to be gone? They were hopeless, and God, in moments of hopelessness, God raises up leaders, and we, that's why we've got to actually see, we're in, we're in, we're in a, a cultural time where we disrespect and disregard all forms of authority. We, we, we don't understand how important you know, authority actually is in our lives. Not that we blindly trust. Again, you understand. We need godly leadership. And God, you know, we also need godly followership. It's amazing when godly leadership and godly followership come together in trust and follow God's vision and say we want to be all in on what God is building. And we see actually then what Nehemiah says in verses 17 through 18. Once he gets back in front of the people after this inspection, and he kind of gives them this envisioning talk. He says, verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision, which is kind of like excessive mocking. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Can you imagine the faith that, that, that just boiled up in their hearts, like hearing what Artaxerxes had said, and they're like, you got permission from Artaxerxes to do this, and he gave you the stuff to do this? Like, can you imagine the, the change of mind in seeing that validation? Now, he starts off, Nehemiah starts off here saying, reminding them of the trouble. I mean, it, maybe they don't need a reminder. They're living amongst the ruins and the rubble, but it, the trouble, but it's not just their physical vulnerability that they're in. The trouble is the derision, that their reputation, and therefore God's reputation, is at stake. 
That's the big issue. God's name, God's glory, God's reputation is at stake. Think about it like this. If you see a house in disrepair or a whole street or a whole neighborhood in massive disrepair, it's going to make you think like, what's, what's happening here? Like, what, what does that tell you about, about the people? Not that, you, not that we necessarily judge, but you, you, it makes you question like, what, what's you know, going on in this, in this area with these people? Does nobody care about, about this? Right? I think that's one of the, one of the an, kind of a, an understandable question to ask. So, yes, we, we do see that the people need to be physically secured. And we talked about this in the past, so we shouldn't be surprised by this, but there is, you know, biblical allowance for like a fortified defense, you know, to protect, mainly to protect the vulnerable and the weak. Like that's, that's a part of the unfortunate reality of the fallen world we live in, that that's something that has to happen. But there's a much bigger lesson, a much bigger, greater lesson in that for us as we relate it to ourselves, as we think about this space, the space that God's called us to, this facility, this church building that we're in, how can we secure it and how can we care for it in a way that communicates the right thing, that communicates the reputation of God's people and God in a way that will glorify him. How do we apply that to ourselves? Because we've got, if we think about it, we've got all kinds of things that go on here. We've got weekly cleaning we've got to think about. We've got landscaping we've got to think about. We've got, we've got to make sure our front doors can't be uh, forced open, as happened recently, and someone uh, broke into the building not too long ago and stole a laptop and a TV and some things. So thankfully, now we've got a new bolt on the, on the front door. And you know, there, there are those literal concerns uh, that, that we have. Uh, we've got to think about straightening the cables on the stage, right, and the, the rugs. Thank you, Alison, for straightening the cables not too long ago. Give her a round of applause, please, for straightening the cables. Not her job, not her job, but she did it. That's, that's, I, love, I, love that. I love that when someone jumps in and says, I'm going to do something that no one's asked me to do. I'm just going to do it, and I respect that a lot. Thank you. Um, but, you know, we got, you know, just picking up the trash that's around here, right, and, um, you know, hopefully getting our landlord to finally fix the, the, the leaking water in the, in the roof. And the ceiling. We're going to pray for that to happen. Um, that'll be our problem if we own the building, right? That'll be our problem. But right now, it's their problem. So um, we're part, trying to partner with them and work with them uh, on that. Uh, we're trying to build an AV booth in the back here. And uh, we're trying to, you know, get a, a neon beer light for the man cave downstairs as well. No, that's, a, that's not a real thing. Uh, we we want to finish the backdrop here. You know, we want to put up some really cool wood and make the aesthetic there uh, look better. You know, there's some, some things we want to do. We want to... Um, Make this facility accessible so that more people can, can gain access and, and can come and are welcome to come. There's all these things we want to do. There's, those are some of the constructioneering, practical side of things. But then we've also got like just ministry side of things. You know, we're trying to reboot our children's ministry. Maybe you or somebody you know could apply for our part-time children's director role. There's all these different things we're trying to do. We're seeing these parallels between us and Nehemiah, that we want to communicate to our city, we want to communicate something powerful to our city, that we're ready for them, that we're here to welcome them, that we, we've got our stuff together, that, we, that we're sincere people, that we're trustworthy people. Because we've got to understand something. And this is, this is the big reason to give to, I say, to give to the, 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 the tangible community sacrificial offering. A big reason to give to it is for the glory of God, for what it communicates to the city. Because it's almost impossible, it's human, it's unrealistic to expect people to not associate and draw conclusions about the household, the people of the house, and the house itself, right? That's why the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover exists, because 
you always judge a book by its cover. You have to be told not to do that because you always do it. And even when you know you shouldn't do it, you still do it. It's human nature. Because, but also, the, the spaces that God gives us to own and to occupy and to take responsibility for, they reflect who we are. They say something about us, and therefore they say something about God. They say something about God. And so I want us to start thinking more and more about we're building owners. We're owners, which means when you own something, it means you've got responsibilities. I've got responsibilities. I want to play a part in that. And that, that, that means a group, a, a group of people coming together. We're going to see this over the weeks of, of this rebuilding project, this returning to God. This is, these are what, some of the ways we return to God is that we get engaged in the activities and the mission of God that God has called us to. The people respond in great faith to Nehemiah. And you know this remnant that could almost have been snuffed out um, respond in faith. And I think there are some people at Trinity that feel like a bit of a Jerusalem remnant, you know, like, hey, we're Wow, over the last couple of years, like, what, look what happened. Like, you know, COVID and all kind of other stuff happened. And it's like, wow, we, but we're the ones that, that hung on and we're still here and we're that remnant. And there's, by God's grace, there's new people joining us and God, you know, fortifying our ranks and, 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 and building us up. It's amazing to see what God is doing. But you can feel like that, that remnant. I, I think it's for those people, let me, let me speak to, to that group to say, you need to reframe that as a positive thing. That's a really positive thing because the people in this day, they, they, they make it into the Bible. They made, they made it into the Bible because they, they were the ones that were faithful to God's plans and they, they stayed the course and God used them to do something absolutely epic in this generation. They had the fortitude, they had the character, they had, they had everything. They, they had what God was calling them to, to say, you, you, you've been faithful, you stay put, now it's time to power up, now it's time to take action, now it's time to lay hold of the purposes and the plans of God and to rebuild, to restore what had been taken away, what had been lost. How does Nehemiah end this? Verse 20, he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Look at that, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Anyone with a biblical worldview will understand something, an amazing truth, an amazing truth, that all the blessings of God, yes, there are blessings that we have to, there are blessings we earn. We don't earn salvation, but there are blessings we earn. But even in the earning of the blessings of God, they're still given by God's grace. <laughs> God will make us prosper. God does the prospering. God brings it about. God doesn't have to bless our efforts. God doesn't have to bless our faithfulness and our obedience to Him. He doesn't have to bless it, but He does because of His grace. It's still grace. It's still His attitude towards us. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to contemplate. And so Nehemiah is telling the people and telling these enemies, God's going to keep us safe. God's got the assist for us. He's going to get us through this. We're not going to perish. We're not going to be destroyed in this process. We're going to make it through because the good hand of God, the good hand of God is with us, guiding us, the sovereignty of God is guiding us. And all of this points, of course, ultimately to Jesus. So the rebuilding project of Jerusalem, what is that? It's a, again, it's a physical picture, a real life picture that matters for all kinds of reasons, but it matters for the greatest reason, that it's a picture of the rebuilding project between God and man. So Jesus was crucified, died in our place. His blood ran down that cross. He was ruined and destroyed so that we could be rebuilt and restored. This rebuilding project is all about the salvation plan of God. Respond in worship and in thanks and honor 
to Jesus today for his plan, for his works, for what he is doing, for how he's saving us, how he's moving through us, how he's got these practical things that he's calling us into, but he's also got these powerful spiritual things that he's doing inside of us and in our city and through us. How can you respond today? What is it that you need to, what steps do you need to take? If you need to give your life to Christ today, take that step today. Come all the way in. If you want to be baptized, we can, we have baptisms we're planning on doing. If you want to participate in tangible community, all kinds of steps you can take. The best way to do that is on your digital connect card to text the word enjoy to 94,000 and respond that way.